We didn't have time to watch this really cool video last week. There's a group called The Bible Project that uh, have, have really, um, I love what they do. They're taking all the newest technology and animation and video, and they're combining it together with solid Bible study, and uh, they make it available for free. And so they have a really, really, really sharp, well-done, short summary uh, of the Gospel of Mark that just gives us a quick aerial view of what the whole book is about, because it's kind of like what we're doing today is diving into like the fifth paragraph of a 30-paragraph letter, and you can get something out of it if you read the fifth paragraph by itself, but you'll get the most out of it if you understand the whole context of the whole thing. So I want to invite you to turn your attention to the screen behind me, and for a few minutes, just watch and, and think and learn a little bit about the overall view of the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll come back and talk about a story from chapter 3. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus, and the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there, because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant, or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. 
Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? Helpful. Getting a quick, um, kind of getting a quick context for it. Um, I, I love the stuff that the Bible Project puts out. They're easy to find on the internet. Just search for the Bible Project, and their website is really great. They have tons of these videos, and, and we will be supporting them ongoing because, you know, putting this stuff out there makes it really easy for us to get our hands on good things that help us understand the Bible better. So we're going to be today in that first section of Mark where we're talking about who, uh, who was Jesus. So if you have your Bible with, with you, please turn to uh, the end of Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, and then we're going to wrap right into chapter 3. I know that seems kind of odd, like, Pastor, why are we reading the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next chapter? Shouldn't they be separated? Um, when they originally wrote the Bible, they did not include chapters and verses. Those were added much later as a way for us to group, organize, and find our way to the passage easier. But um, I think in looking at this carefully, these really connect Because what Mark is trying to show us something is how quickly Jesus' life, the pace of his life, dramatically increased when he stopped being anonymous. About the first 30 years of his life, we don't get a whole lot of those stories. You get his birth, you get uh, the story about when he was 12 years old and he, he stayed behind at the temple while his parents... You know, kept traveling on in the caravan, and they realized that Jesus was missing. We get that story. We get Luke 2.52, which says that basically during his teenage years, he grew in height and in uh, favor with God and favor with man, and he grew in wisdom. So we get a little bit, but not much. Then all of a sudden, when Jesus comes forward to be, and he's identified by John the Baptist, and he gets baptized in water, it's like the fast-forward button hits on his life. If you read through Mark chapter 1 and 2, There are 12 scenes in two chapters, which is extremely fast. 
Mark is showing you that, look, one day Jesus was baptized, and the next day this happened, and then that afternoon this happened, and then that happened, and then he healed these people. And then he went off to pray. And then he healed another person. And then he got into an argument. And then he got into another argument. And then he got into another argument. And it happens. Bam, 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 bam. So fast. In fact, if you kind of looked at just chapter 2 all by itself, you'd say, man, Jesus' life involved two things. Mark's showing us two things that were in, in, uh, in abundance in Jesus' life. And they both start with the letter C. Crowds and conflict. He was hardly ever by himself. In fact, he had to make intentional effort to have some alone time. Can any of you relate with that? Right? He had to make intentional effort to have some alone time because every, even when he went to have his alone time, people came and found him. Even when he went to take a personal retreat, people went and found him. And yet you never see Jesus reacting angrily at people for not giving him his space. Can any of you relate with that? He's so like us and unlike us at the same time. But what you see here in chapter 2 is Mark is trying to show us, he shows us at the end of chapter 2 and through the beginning of chapter 3, he shows us five scenes. And a lot of times we break them up and we study them individually. You got, you got five scenes here. If you have your Bible and you have little headings, you might see uh, you might see things like, of course, that's Matthew, so that doesn't help you. Let's go to Mark. Um, you see Jesus heals and forgives a paralyzed man. We talked about that last week. That's scene one. Scene two, Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Scene three, Jesus is questioned about fasting. Scene four, Jesus announces that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And scene five that we'll talk about a little bit today is Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So you can cut them up into five scenes, but if I just retold them to you quickly and bring emphasis to what Mark's trying to point out, it might make more sense that we're looking at the climax of what Mark is trying to show us, kind of like the climax of five conflicts. Because like we said last week, Jesus did go into a house to teach, scene one. And there's uh, so much of a crowd that people couldn't, you know, people couldn't move around, and a paralyzed man is carried there by his friends, and since they can't get in, what do they do? They climb up and they dig a hole in the roof. You remember this from last week? And they lower the man down. And yes, Jesus forgives him and yes, he heals him. But something happens that Mark points out. Jesus recognized the thoughts of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the room. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law were thinking to themselves, who does this man think he is to talk the way he's talking? And Jesus reads their minds and addresses them right then and there. The next scene, we see Jesus calls a man named Levi. You know, you know a little bit more of the story. Levi is a tax collector, and I've taught extensively about tax collectors, but they were the white-collar criminals of the day. And Jesus, as he's going along, is teaching people and calls Levi to come and follow him, and he does. And then we see Mark shows us later, Jesus is sitting around the table having a meal with Levi and his friends. Levi's friends were all white-collar criminals. And the Pharisees once again show up. First they show up and they're, and they're picking on why does he talk the way that he talks. Now they're saying, why does he hang out with the people that he hangs out with? You see, they're hanging. They are watching everything he says and everything he does. He has no privacy. And now we see a second conflict where they're questioning his company. And he says, would a doctor hang out with healthy people? Shouldn't a doctor be among the sick? And then we're saying, 
Where else would you expect to find the Messiah? Where else would you expect to find the Son of God than with the people that need to be saved? The third scene. He shows right after that. He says, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and some people came up to Jesus' disciples. Now it's interesting. If, if you go through all the conflict stories, ask yourself a question. Do these people address Jesus directly with their issues or do they just murmur, talk, or think about it? Very few people were courageous enough to actually confront him. It was easier to talk about him than to talk to him because he'd shut you down pretty quick. And they were nervous about that. But now a group of people... They see that John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Now they're saying, you know, a a chapter, one scene earlier, they're saying, why is he eating with these people? Now the next one, they're saying, why are they eating at all? All the other religious people that we know, all the other spiritually elite people that we know, they're not fasting. Why are you not fasting? So we have a third conflict. Scene four. Jesus is now, uh, Jesus is now uh, walking along with his disciples on the Sabbath, and that's a key to carry into the climax, on the Sabbath, and some of his disciples get hungry and start plucking grain and eating it, and obviously some of the bad, <laughs> the bad guys, are not really the bad guys, but the, we call them bad, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see this and now they have another problem. Why do you think that it's okay for you to do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Because you see, the Sabbath in the world of the Pharisees was a day that God said, you need to not do any type of physical exertion whatsoever. And so they decided that the best way to make sure that God liked them and approved of them was to come up with a whole bunch of do's and don'ts for the Sabbath. And one of the things you could not do is exert physical energy to pluck grain and eat it. And so, you know, you, you see a theme here that Mark's trying to show you. Jesus is just minding his own business, teaching, and there's a conflict. Jesus reaches out to a white-collar criminal, invites him into relationship, opens a door for Jesus to speak into the lives of all the other white-collar criminals, and now there's another conflict. They have a problem with where he's eating and who he's eating with. They have a problem with what he's talking about. They have a problem with the way he practices his faith. Everybody else is singing this song. Everybody else goes to church on Sunday. Everybody else tithes. Everybody else fasts. Why aren't you fasting? There's another conflict. Now, he's hungry, and the disciples are hungry, and it happens to be the Sabbath, and they pluck some grain and eat it, and now there's another conflict. You see, the life of Jesus goes from complete anonymity to fast forward, from complete privacy to no privacy, from relative obscurity to almost constant turmoil and conflict. That's what Mark is trying to show us in chapter 2 when he got up when he spoke, when he was quiet, when he ate, on the off days, on the on days, there was constantly people watching his every move. And because of the life he lived, it brought him into constant conflict. Who wants to follow him, (laughs) right? So with that as our backdrop, let's hop into the fourth scene and then transition into the fifth scene. In the fourth scene, um, it's on the Sabbath, They're walking through the grain fields. The Pharisees say to him, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers, this is not where we're at yet, so I'm just, uh, I'm I'm, I'm catching up to you. He says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and and in need? In other words, he's saying, who's the number one historic figure of your faith? Probably David or Abraham. Well, let's talk about David. David did this. Do you have a problem with him? 
In the days of of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then let's read together. Well, I'll read it to you. We don't have to read it together. Here's the part where we're at today. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. In other words, the Sabbath is something God created for you to receive. To be joy to you. To be peace to you. He made it for you but man did they miss it he says it's sabbath was not for the people to meet the requirements of the sabbath so the son of man is then he says this crazy statement the son of man is lord even over the sabbath okay let's keep reading into chapter three jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand since it was when Uh, sounds like a trap again doesn't it fact if you read and I wouldn't advise reading these first but there's a lot of other writing from this time that we don't elevate into the Bible we don't give it that level of authority but there are a few other historical accounts one called the gospel of the Edomites and the gospel of the Nazarenes that that gives us some other background account it's not necessary to this story because Mark didn't include it but there is uh, in those books they say they they say that they have evidence that the Pharisees actually found this man that we're going to read about in a second. He had a legitimate disability. He was formerly a stonemason, but had lost the ability to use his hands. And in these extra biblical accounts, they say the Pharisees actually bribed this guy to come to the synagogue that day. Now, he wasn't complicit in it. He wasn't a co-conspirator, but they wanted to set a trap for Jesus. In other words, if we can, if we can catch him healing on the Sabbath, which was forbidden unless it was, unless it was life-threatening, we can really nail him and be done with him. And so, you know, I don't know how true that that is. It's interesting. I don't know how true that it is. I wouldn't put it past the Pharisees. But nonetheless, Mark doesn't think that that's crucial for the story. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus is teaching and noticed, notice a man with, with, a, with, a deformed, with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So why did the Pharisees, what was their motivation to come to the house of the Lord that day? Were they there to hear some good teaching? What were they there to do? They were there to accuse. They were there to find fault. Okay. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Now, this should strike you as odd. Up to this point, what does Jesus usually do when he performs a healing? Keep it quiet, right? Don't tell anybody or go show yourself to the priest. Don't tell people. What does he? Now here, he's like saying, let's make this very public. Come and stand in front of us. And then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Why? He stunned them to silence. He took their own logic and used it right against them. He looked around at them. Listen to these two emotions. He looked at them angrily and simultaneously was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. He was angry, but simultaneously deeply saddened by their hard hearts. We'll come back to that. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand. Very, very simple application here. Jesus says to him, do something. And what does the man do? He does it. Hold out your hand. Well, can you give me a sign that this is really you? Hold out your hand. Should I hold it out this way? This way? This way? Like this? Like that? 
Are you sure? Why? None of those questions says, hold out your hand. He held out his hand, and it was restored. And then this really, really crazy verse. At once the Pharisees went away and met with, I should say, their sworn enemies. They met with the supporters of Herod, and some of your Bibles will say the Herodians, to plot how to kill Jesus. We are 12 scenes into Mark's gospel, and already we see the plot to murder Jesus has been hatched. And the most unlikely of, of, of enemies become allies. The Herodians, who wanted nothing to do with the law, who are not practicing Jews, who were all touchy-feely, let's figure out, let's figure out. They're free thinkers, they were non-religious. They said, we don't need the law to figure out what's right and wrong, we'll do it on our own. And the Pharisees say, you can't figure out what's right and wrong, you have to follow the law. But the two of them had a common enemy in Jesus. Because you see, Jesus stands in the face of both religion and non-religion. So what do we do with, with all of this? What do we, how do we digest some of this and figure out what it is that, that, Jesus was, that Mark was trying to show his readers, that Mark is trying to show us today? The big idea, I, there's probably two main thoughts here, but the big idea that I want to suggest to you this morning is this. The big idea is that Jesus is trying to show us that he is our Sabbath. He is the deep rest we truly need. He's trying to show us, number one, he is our Sabbath. Sabbath, a very close synonym to that word, is shalom, which means total peace. Okay, very close synonym. Jesus is trying to, he's trying to say to these people whose whole life was miserable and it was built upon effort and it was built upon rituals and it was built upon control and it was built upon rules and it was built upon do's and don'ts. Does that sound like a life you want? Would you look into one of these Pharisees' lives and says, aha, if I could just live like them, man, would life be great. They're literally following a guy around trying to hang on his every word, observe every action to find something that they could do to accuse him, to murder him, to imprison him, to shut him down. And their whole life is bent upon keeping all the rules. And they think they have to keep the rules in order for God to approve of them. And in their own minds, they think they're right. And what Jesus is saying you need is he's saying is, God doesn't love you because of your effort. God loves you because he is love. And what he's trying to show the Pharisees is you've missed the forest for the trees. In your effort to so control your life and people's lives by making sure you don't break the Sabbath, i.e. you don't disappoint God, you've actually made your life even more filled with unrest. You've made it more filled with anxiety. You've filled it with more stress. You've actually filled it with more exertion and more work. And Jesus says that wasn't the point of us creating the Sabbath. Us, he, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit. That's not why we created this. We created it to be a gift to you because you need to receive rest from your labor. You need deep recharging. You need your body to be restored and rejuvenated. You need your thinking to be restored and rejuvenated. So we created an opportunity to give that to you called Sabbath. And you have taken something we gave to you to be a blessing to you. And you've turned it around and you've used it as your way to earn God's approval. 
And that's misery, and that's called religion. Religion says, if I perform the right way, God will accept me. So I live with a sense of either guilt because I'm not performing well or pride because I am. And I believe that those are the things that gets God to approve of me. And all the good things and the godly things and the moral things I do are my initiative to get a response from God. Jesus came to say, the gospel message, his message, is that God already loves you. And when you come to him, you are fully accepted in him. And that all of the good and the moral effort and the godliness that we want to put into effect in our life is not initiative, it's a response to a God that we love. You see, religion teaches obedience that is burdensome. The gospel teaches obedience that's delightful and that it's a joy and that it's a response to a God who loves us. And he's trying to show this to the Pharisees. Could you imagine how their lives would have changed if they could have grabbed onto this? But instead, it had the exact opposite effect. So a couple questions I had while I was reading through this. Um, uh, one of them, we kind of already talked about it. What motivated Jesus' enemies to attend the synagogue in this story? What motivated Jesus' enemies? And we answered that already. They came to investigate their suspicions about Jesus, not to worship God. They were looking for a reason to accuse. And it's clear from this passage, there's a, there's a little clue in here to what they already believed about Jesus, which is remarkable. It's in verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him. So what does that tell you the Pharisees already believed to be true about Jesus? They weren't looking to see if he could heal him. Like, hey, we'll, we'll give him a real tough one. They already believed Jesus could heal. They believed. Some people say, man, if Jesus just showed up in the flesh on a Sunday morning, everybody in this community would believe in him. History says no, they would not. Because here are people who sat in the presence of Jesus, who sat under his teaching, who know what his breath smelled like who knew how he wore his hair, who knew what his skin tone really was. They saw the miracles firsthand. They didn't read about them 2,000 years later, and they rejected him. They knew he could heal, and that wasn't enough for them to really give him permission to be the Lord of their life and tell them how to think and reprogram their wrong thinking. They wouldn't, they wouldn't receive that. That was too big of an ask for them. So here they are. They're motivated. See, when you come with that motivation of your heart, truth can show up and it'll go through your damage filter and it'll come out the other way. Someone will come along just trying to help and you think that they're trying to tear you down. Someone along just trying to give you, you know, give you some good advice and you think that they're attacking you. You see, when you come with that type of motivation in your heart and you are just a belligerent, you like to get into conflict. When I say to some of you, hey, would you like a life filled with conflict? Some of you just say yes because honestly you thrive on conflict. You love it. You can't wait for an opportunity to tell your waiter or waitress what was wrong with your meal. You cannot wait to get in the customer service line. You cannot wait to tell everybody in earshot that somebody forgot to send you an email and now you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. You cannot wait for conflict. You see, Jesus didn't go looking for conflict. But when you have that in your heart, even when the truth shows up, you won't receive it. It's a very dark, hard place to be. And we need to take a warning from the Pharisees lest we become those kinds of people. Another question I had was, 
Um, why was Jesus' approach to the Sabbath so controversial and unsettling? Think about it. What did the Pharisees, what action did they take right after the healing service gets done? What did they go to do? What was the next thing they went to do? To plot murder on what day of the week? Do you see the irony here? Do you understand Jesus' question now when he says, which is the better thing to do, heal somebody or go plot to kill somebody? Do you understand the irony? He asks them before they go and do it. I got chill bumps when I said that. Do you understand? He's saying, you're saying it's, it's, it's wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath. That's unlawful. But in a few minutes, you can go out and plot my death. Why, why were they so incensed? I mean, to the point where these Pharisees actually felt like it was God honoring for them to go plot a murder on the Sabbath. How could they be the same people? On the one hand, they're bent out of shape because of what they perceive as the sin of this guy, but they're blind to their own. Isn't that the human condition? We're good at pointing out other people's stuff. Man, we can see it so clearly, but we can't see it in our own hearts. It's a warning, guys. It is a warning. The moment you think I could never do that, you have taken a giant step closer to being that gal, to being that guy. Why were they so incensed? Why were they so upset? That is probably an entire book in and of itself. Why the Pharisees had issues with Jesus. It was basically, you know, in this place, Jesus and the Pharisees had two diametrically opposite ideas of the Sabbath. What was Jesus doing on Sabbath? He's like, I'm going to go around and bring, I'm going to bring healing to people's bodies. I'm going to bring joy to their souls. I'm going to bring rest to their spirit. I'm going to forgive sins because that's what they really need to have. Rest. How can you have shalom? How can you have Sabbath if your heart is sick? How can you have Sabbath if you're worried about, you know, this guy's hands being destroyed? We're not talking about today, but this guy's hand. Jesus understood this guy has basically had any possibility of being useful in life taken from him you needed your hands usefulness had been destroyed jesus gave him his usefulness back on the sabbath he wants to give you your usefulness back he wants to give you joy and motivation back he wants you to be so utterly and deeply satisfied with your work that you can easily put it aside and take some full rest for a season. That's what Sabbath really means, to be so deeply, utterly satisfied with all your work that it is a joy for you to be able to put it aside and take some deep rest for a season. And yet, that's probably one of the things that we as God followers, as Christ followers, as disciples, especially in this society and this time, struggle with. Because we esteem ourselves and others based on our busyness or the perception thereof. The busier we are, we're almost embarrassed to say, what'd you do yesterday? Well, I, I kind of just, I took a nap, I read a book, I drank some tea, and we think, oh, you're lazy. Guess what I did yesterday? You know, I, you know, I built a house with my bare hands. I dug a well with my bare hands. Isn't it crazy? You can go on YouTube. I'm, 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 I'm on a trip. You can go on YouTube. Have you seen some of these channels where there's these people who have decided, they're like yuppies who have decided to go live as primitives? They're building houses with, you know, the people with master's degree building sticks and stones with their bare hands and living, you know, living with just little candles and they're, they're cooking over the fire again. You're like, we have all these things and now we're like, the more advanced connected way to live is to live like a primitive. Do all this work with our hands. It's crazy. We think that busyness and activity is the badge of success. And Jesus is saying there's a root underneath that that's telling you you need to do these things and appear this way. And he's coming in in the exact opposite because if you ask somebody this question long enough, ask it of yourself, why is it so hard for you to stop working? 
I don't mean like retire at 27. I mean, why is it hard for you to take eight hours and put away the work email and not wash or dry or fold something? Not need to be, have stimulation fed you. Not be working on a project or making a budget or going through the numbers or working another shift or taking the, Why is it so hard for us to come to that point? Why do you work as hard as you do? Well, because I want to be a good provider. Because, okay, why? Well, because, you know, I want, I want to take care of my family and I want us to have a good life. Why? Well, because I don't want to be viewed as someone who doesn't care. Now we're getting more real. Deep down underneath it, what Jesus is trying to show us and what the Bible tries to point out to us is that there's this part of our human heart that says, I have to constantly do, I have to constantly perform, I have to constantly work, I have to constantly be educated. I can't let the moss grow underneath my feet because that's how I prove to myself and others that I'm good. That's how I prove to me that I am worthwhile. That's how I proved to my, well, why do you work as hard as you do? Well, by God, that's the way that I was raised. Well, why? Well, because that's just what, you know, in my family, that's just what nowers do. We just, we just work hard. Well, well, good. Hey, I'm a fan of having a strong work ethic. There's, the Bible speaks against laziness, too. Living this out does not mean that you're just going to go grab yourself a tall, cool glass of iced tea, put an umbrella in it, sit in a hammock seven days a week while you go into bankruptcy. That's not what Jesus is advocating at all. He's talking about the motivation for why you overachieve. The motivation for why you work more hours than you need to work. The motivation why you're socking away more money than you really need to live. The motivation why you spend beyond your budget even when you can't afford it. The motivation why you feel like you have to have more and more and achieve and achieve and work and work and outdo and outperform. He's saying the motivation behind that really is not because we want to, it's not because we think that this is God's assignment for us. We think it's the way we show God, ourselves, and other people that we're really down, deep, down, deep. We're good. We're good. We're just good, hardworking people. And what Jesus is saying is if you live that way, you will never, ever, 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 ever have rest because you will view rest as the opposite of achievement. You will view rest, you will view rest as for the weak, for the lazy. And he says to the Pharisees, your whole approach to the Sabbath has added more work, more performance, and more stress, the very opposite thing the Sabbath was created for. And if you follow religion that way, you will never, ever, ever have rest because you think you're your own Lord and Savior. I have to earn God's acceptance by my own efforts. I am my own Lord because I'm going to figure it out myself. I am my own Savior because it depends upon me for God to love me. Friend, that's a trap a lot of us live in. You can take the Sabbath out of the equation, but a lot of the motivation I hear for Christians to do things is because they think if they don't do it, God will be upset with them. And if they do it, he will approve of them. And a lot of the good things that we do are motivated out of our own self-saving complex. Is that really rest? Is that really life-giving? Is that really something you thought you were signing up for, yet another list of to-dos, yet another boss to please, yet another set of things to do? 
Are you the one who feels guilty if you missed your prayer meeting this morning? Are you the one that feels like you can walk on eggshells, you, you have to walk on eggshells with God because you, you forgot to bring your offering last week? Are you the one who feels like you are now somehow better than everybody else because you did spend two hours in Bible study today and you do know Greek and Hebrew and, you do know, and so you should walk with a certain air? Both of those extremes, Jesus came to turn them upside down. He says, as long as you think your performance is going to earn God's acceptance, you'll never be able to rest. But friend, when you find Jesus, he is the deep rest you really need. One day a week rest is good, but what you really need is deep rest from your soul. This rest that says, I no longer have to perform for God to love me. I no longer have to be busy for him to accept me. I am accepted because of Jesus, not because of my performance. And now I have liberty to do whatever it is that God puts in front of me, to work as hard as I want to, and to be so utterly satisfied with it that I can set it aside and enjoy rest. That's what he was trying to show, and boy, boy, did they miss it. So what do we make out of Jesus' unanswered questions here? He asks two questions in this passage. What do we make out of it? He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life? Or to kill. And we kind of touched on the irony already because in just a few moments they go out on the Sabbath and they decide it's okay, it's lawful for us to have a a, a conspirators meeting on the Sabbath to plot the death of another human being. But boy, the nerve of that guy to heal someone's hand on the Sabbath because they had a rule. He's playing, it's kind of like a, he's, he's dealing with them on two levels. One is prophetic, the other one is in the here and now because he knew according to their law, not God's law, but their law that they added The only way you could do healing on the Sabbath is if a life was in danger. And what he's doing, John Calvin says it this way. I want to get this right. He says, John Calvin says, Jesus is trying to show that there is little difference between manslaughter and one who will not concern himself about relieving another in distress. Let me say it again. Calvin said, Jesus is trying to show that there's really very little difference between manslaughter and the person who has absolutely no moving in their heart towards someone who's in distress that they could relieve. Have you been in a position where you could relieve someone's distress and you just talked yourself right out of doing it? Jesus is saying there's a hair's width between that and destroying a life. You can flip it around and say when you help someone in their distress that God puts in your path, you're bringing life to them. It's as though you're saving a life by relieving distress. So that's one possibility that he's going after. The other one is I, I shared with you earlier, um, that the will of God is better served by saving lives, not plotting to destroy them. Why was Jesus simultaneously angry with and saddened by the leaders? You remember that verse we looked at just a minute ago? Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger, and simultaneously he was deeply distressed and saddened. You know it's possible <laughs> to be both angry and sad at the same time. We forget that Jesus didn't come to destroy the Pharisees. He came to save them. It's easy for us to vilify them with the, you know, our historical bias and look back at them. Jesus didn't come because he's like, you know what? I'm going to leave heaven because I've got to get those guys. I'm going to show them, boy, I've got some stuff up my sleeve. I'm going I'm to bait them into some arguments. I'm going to silence them. I'm going to humiliate them. It's going to be so sweet. Haven't you ever fantasized about what you would say to that one person if you got the chance? I've said before, you can pull up next to someone at the red light and stop and look over, and you can see some people with no music on in their car. They're not talking on the phone, but they are just having an argument with nobody. But they're practicing, right? 
Like if the opportunity, I'm going to tell her that I'm going to tell him. That's not why Jesus got into these conversations. He was angry. What was he angry about? He was angry at their sinfulness. He was angry with them because they were always opposing the truth. Here he is trying to do his father's will, and they're constantly getting in the way, and that makes him angry. But the Greek word indicates that 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 particular word for anger was one that was on the lesser end. It was like a short-lived, it was a very short-lived, it was quickly gotten over. The stronger word is the one describing how deeply distressed he was in their heart. He was was deeply distressed. He had so much compassion for these men because he was saddened by their dullness of heart. Listen, they were blinded by their own blindness. They were deafened by their own deafness. And I've talked about this a lot this morning, but this should be a stark warning to us. We read this story and we ask ourselves, how did these guys not get it? How did they not like hold up the mirror and look at themselves and say, man, what kind of person am I? I'm actually upset that this guy wants to heal somebody's disability. What kind of a dark heart do you have to have to be angry that a disabled person got healed? But they didn't see that. Not only that, they didn't see how twisted they were to go out and plot the death of an innocent man. And we read this story and we say, how did these people not get it? And the message of the story is that when you are blind, you are also blind to others. When you're blind to the needs of others, you're blind to the needs of yourself. The warning is the person who's in this condition doesn't think they're in this condition. And beware lest you become that guy or gal. It is very possible that there are areas in your life and your behavior and of your choice that is wreaking danger and bitterness and difficulty into the lives of people around you. And you don't know it and they're not telling you. And if they're telling you, you're not listening. It is very possible that even right now, each of us, I hope to some lesser degree, are carrying on our lives in some ways like the Pharisees. There is something in our attitude. There is something in our habits. There is something in our patterns of communication. There is something or some things in our life that we are doing that we are blind to that is causing distress in the lives of the people that are around us. And we don't see it. And they're not telling us. And the Bible shows us, beware of becoming that person. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that guy or that gal. Well, pastor, what do I do if, to make sure this doesn't happen? This is going to take some effort on your part, and it is not easy and it's not pleasant, but this is the, there's not 101 ways around this. Number one, you have to ask somebody close to you to tell you what your blind spots are. And that person has to tell you. And you have to receive it. Okay, pastor, what's the other option? (laughs) There isn't one. If you muster the courage to ask somebody, you also need to hope that they feel safe enough to tell you. Man, the fact that you get bitter whenever anybody else gets a healing, that's just not becoming. That's not becoming of you. Don't be that person. Can't you see the greater good? You see, there's two parts of this equation. Now, if somebody asks you, show me my blind spots, are you going to be honest? That's like, you know, the dreaded moment when my wife says, what do you think of this sweater? Uh, uh, 
And that's, if, if you hesitate, you're done. If you answer quickly but incorrectly, you're done. It's just like, I, the true answer is usually, I agree with your opinion, whatever it is. <laughs> Unless I should disagree with it, and then I disagree. <laughs> right? But you see, the Pharisees did not embrace that type of relationship. But I don't want to get to the place in my life where I live with that kind of darkness and dullness in my own heart. And or, and or be the type of person that the people around me know, you can't bring that to Phil because he will lop your head off. He will go on the attack. Because some of us have had people in our life and say like, hey, this isn't working. You need to brush your teeth. You need to floss your teeth. You need to, you know, stop clicking your pen 800 times a minute when you don't realize it. Stop chewing your gum so loud. Like little things like that, right? And we go on the defense of how dare they, blah, 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 blah. Listen, if you can't handle that, what about some of the bigger, weightier issues in your life? The Bible does not teach that the way to follow Jesus is being this little insulated, holier-than-thou person to yourself who receives no input. The Bible says we need to be humble, we need to be teachable, and we need to surround ourselves carefully with the people. You don't need to listen to it. It's hard to hear it from your critics, but you can hear it from your friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'm never going to hand a knife to an enemy and ask him to come cut me, but at times in my life I've handed one to a surgeon and said, please cut me. One of them is using that knife to cut with the intention of bringing healing. The other one <laughs> would want to bring pain. You see, the Pharisees, they just didn't live the kind of life where they were willing, where they were willing to let anybody speak in their life, and they had such dullness of heart. And it saddened Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself could not change them. Do you understand how dire this is? What, if you were God and you could send anybody in the world to try and convert the Pharisees, who would you pick? Probably the guy who was trying to convert them. And in the face of Jesus himself, they said no. And they got their hearts hardened. So friend, don't be discouraged when you are trying to be light in the lives of the Pharisees in your life. They rejected Jesus too, but that doesn't mean we give up on him. Okay? So uh, how, how, what are the implications of this scene? I'll give you two I'll, I'll give you two blanks to fill in real quick. Number one, religion says we have to save ourselves, and you can never truly rest. The gospel says Jesus is our Savior, so you can have deep rest in him. I hope this sinks in, this becomes a relief to you. Religion says save yourself, and, if you, and you do it by reading your Bible X amount of times and praying X amount of times and tithing to, you know, tithing 10% and giving to every offering and volunteering here and not swearing and, you know, all these other types of moral behavior. It teaches moral conformity. And it puts all the responsibility and effort on you. And you're not doing it as a grateful response to a God who's already saved you. You're doing it as a fearful behavior in the hopes that it will sway him to like you. And that is not pleasurable. That is burdensome. On the other hand, the gospel shows us Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is our Savior. He is our Shalom. And when you come to Jesus, you are accepted in him, friend. You're forgiven. You're filled with power. You're released with grace. You're given mercy. He supplies to you a new identity that's based upon him, not upon your performance. He gives you a purpose and a meaning to, the, to each, every moment of every day. And it is durable. It does not change with fashion. It does not change with technology. It does not change with your vocation. He gives you a purpose and a meaning that is durable. And he gives you hope of a brighter day for your future. 
This is what Jesus gives you. You don't earn it. You don't, you don't earn it by performance. You don't keep it by performance. However, performance, effort, discipline is part of the life of a believer, but it's motivated out of our love for God. It's motivated as a response for how good he's been to us. That's why we do those things. Religion requires obedience that's burdensome. The gospel inspires obedience that is delightful. Religion says, if I perform and if I obey, then I'll be accepted. The gospel says, I'm fully accepted in Jesus and therefore I obey. That one day per week rest, that one day per week Sabbath, taking physical and mental time away from work, it is just a taste of the deeper rest we really need. The deeper rest we need is to be so utterly satisfied with our work that we can walk away from it. And we can leave it alone and be okay with that. To say, like Jesus said, it truly is finished. Most of us work with the motivation of convincing God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. And that work is never over unless you rest in the gospel. Number two, the gospel is diametrically opposed to both religion, represented by the Pharisees in this scene, and non-religion, the supporters of Herod. And what do you mean by all that? The Pharisees saw a healing heard some great teaching, and they left that church service, and rather than going to lunch, they went to a meeting to plot his death. And they went and met with the Herodians, which I could nerd out on this morning, and I won't. But know this. The Herodians were non-practicing Jews. Herod was the head honcho in the Jewish government. And he was a Jew by birth and by ethnicity, but he did not practice the law. And the followers of Herod really liked this because he got rid of all the, you know, he's like, listen, you don't have to follow the rituals. You don't have to do all the sacrifices. If you touch some mold, you don't have to be sprinkled with ash if a dead goat for seven days. You don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. We're bright people. We're wise people. We're relevant. We're hip. We are good enough to figure out what is right and what is wrong on our own. And if we can figure that out, God will accept us. So on the one hand, you have Herod and his followers who said, listen, we're going to bring in the new religion, and it's non-religion. You figure out right and wrong on your own, and if you do generally what is right, and you do generally good moral things that we all sense in our heart are right, God will accept us. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees who say, absolutely should you not figure it out for yourself. God has given it to us in the law. It wasn't specific enough, so we helped God out and we added to it. We have all these rules, and if you memorize them and you follow them blindly, then God will like you, and if you don't, he won't. You have two people, the religious and the non-religious, and they band together because both of them agreed, you know, hey, whatever, you know, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, right? So they both had a common enemy in Jesus, and it makes strange bedfellows out of these two factions, and now they start to work together because both of them thought we need to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is diametrically opposed to both religion and non-religion. Why? In a nutshell, it's this. Because religion and non-religion both teach you can save yourself. You're your own Lord. You're your own Savior. Religion says you save yourself by good behavior, by being moral, by doing all the things the Bible says, but a lot of good behavior, a lot of good performance. That's how you save yourself. Non-religion says you save yourself by just choosing what is good and acting on that. And Jesus says, I am your Lord. I am your Savior. I am the only one who can both deliver you from yourself and be Lord of all and everything. And friend, most of us fall into one of those two camps. Some of us have a relationship with God that's based out of you following, cherry-picking the parts of the Bible you think are binding and you follow those and the parts that aren't comfortable for you, you reject or you rationalize and you leave them alone and you pick and you choose and you're finding a non-religious way to God. 
You might be sitting here this morning, have attended this church for several years, but that might be your faith. You believe what the Bible says about, you know, you believe what it says about telling the truth and this and that and the other thing, but you're okay with fantasizing, you know, having sexual fantasies in your mind about people you're not married to. You're okay with not giving anything to the church. You're okay with it. Those parts of the Bible you have a problem with, but you pick the parts that you like. You know, that's kind of what the Herodians were doing. Well, we pick, we believe that there's a God and that he's one and we're going to do this and that and the other thing, but, but Jesus says that's not what I'm about. You're still trying to save yourself because you think you know the best way to package salvation. And on the other side, there's some of us who say, well, I'm saved because by God, if anybody should be saved, it should be me. I come to church four times a week. I go to seven Good Friday services. I have the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Apocrypha, and several of the, you know, the extra canonical writings memorized in all original languages. I give 11% in church, not online. I serve all kids' ministries. I even volunteer to load in and load out on the non-Sundays. I bring the, I bring the trailer. I just unload it and reload it just because God deserves it. Therefore, I'm being funny. <laughs> but I wonder if that's where some of us are too. We think it's because of all of our performance that God loves us. And it's robbing you of the joy of just performing because you love him back. It's robbing you of that. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. As I close, I was going through some of the books I don't usually get into. They're in my office, but sometimes I run out of time to, to dig in. And I have this one collection of books that's basically carefully curated and organized sermons of rather forgotten, unknown, anonymous preachers from the early 1900s. And I love reading through what they write about this. And one particular unknown pastor concluded this story with the following application statements. I just want to read what he wrote because it's simple, it's brilliant, and it's clear. What do we do with this story? Jesus' words and actions were watched closely. So are ours. This man found Jesus in the sanctuary, and so may we. This man took Jesus at his word and did exactly as Jesus asked. So let us. Let's recognize that not doing good is evil. And whatever good we attempt to do will be accompanied by Jesus' power with us and in us. Isn't that sweet and simple? You know, we see Jesus' words and actions are watched carefully, but he didn't mind. He didn't have anything to hide. Could your words and actions be watched carefully like Jesus? Can you invite that into your life? Can you use it as a testimony? Or are we the type of people that the more closely people watch us, the more confused they'll be about who we serve? Reflection questions. In what ways are you still trying to save yourself? Wouldn't you like to lay that down today? What causes you the most unrest? What makes it hardest for you to take time away from your work, from your striving, from performing? Would you be willing to let go of that today? What would your life be like if you could really, truly rest, to be so utterly satisfied with your work that you could leave it alone for a time? I'll invite the worship team to come back as we pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, friend, Jesus is inviting you into deep rest. He makes this grand invitation in the Gospels to come to him, everybody who is stressed and loaded up and tired, and he wants to make an exchange and give you rest for that. And yes, it's nice for us to take a day a week or a window of time a week 
and get that once a week deep rest, a physical and mental break from work. But you know, we need so much more than that. We need deep rest for our souls. And that's what I found in Jesus. I have found in Jesus deep rest for my soul, a relief from performing to please people, a relief from unnecessary pressure to do more than God is asking me to do in order to try and prove to him something that he already knows. Friend, you can find that in Jesus and you won't find it anywhere else, not permanently. There's not enough money, not enough success, not enough toys, not enough things for you to be able to truly rest outside of knowing that you are accepted by God based on Jesus' performance, not yours. If you're ready to take him up on that offer and you're ready to give control of your life to Jesus, it's as simple as ABC, admit, believe, choose. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe Jesus is the son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead and see, choose him to be your Lord and Savior. And if you're ready to make that decision, he will forgive you, he will save you, he will change you, and he will give you rest. If that's what you'd like to do this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray right in your seat or right where you're listening to this message. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm living life my own way. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place. You paid the penalty for my sins. And that payment was accepted by God the Father. And it was proven by giving us the receipt of you being raised from the dead and given a new life. I know that if you have new life, I can have new life. And so I receive forgiveness today. I receive rest. Boy, do I need it. I laid down my striving. I laid down my unnecessary pressure to perform and to be all and do all because I will never have rest if that is my life motto. Instead, I choose you and I find deep rest and peace in you today. I surrender control of my life to you because you'll guide me in the ways that will deliver to me joy, mercy, and grace and favor. Thank you for saving me. Amen. And Father, all of us lay our hearts before you today and in the areas where we might be trying to save ourselves, Lord, will you, put, will you speak life and peace over that today? For the ones who still have deep unrest in their soul, who feel like even when they lay down to sleep, they can't find rest, I quiet that storm in the mighty name of Jesus. We release our cares and our anxieties to you because you care for us. Lord, we love you, and we are so relieved to know that in you we have rest, and you just love us as we are, not as we could be, not as we used to be. You love us as we are. We thank you so much for that. In my name we pray, amen.